You're listening to a CFCC audio podcast. For news and service times, visit www.cfccnet.org. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us this morning as we come before the Lord in worship and in praise. If you have not already had a chance to look at the bulletin today, I would encourage you to do so at some point. Uh, We have a lot going on this summer. Tomorrow night, our ladies' Bible study will be hosting a movie night in the Foundation Center right over here. Uh, You're invited to come out for that. And we know that it's been a busy summer already, but we still have a lot going on with the elementary kids and our students Our middle schoolers just got back from a week of camp. Our third through fifth graders are leaving for camp today, and our first and second graders leave for camp on Friday. So a lot going on with the youth. Keep them in your prayers. Um, Those weeks at camp are really important for the leaders to connect with kids, and also uh, it's a great time for spiritual growth for the students that go out there. So we, we thank you when you keep us lifted up in prayer. I also want to point out that we have a grief share class starting in August. We know that uh, when we lose someone or when we're going to lose someone, that, that can be a difficult time. And having the emotional support of others that are walking with us through that pain and pointing us towards Christ is helpful. So if you'd like more information about that, please check that out as well. And then I want to remind you that at the end of our services each week, you'll see people standing at the front of the stage. Those are our prayer partners. Um, We encourage you to come up for prayer. That's not a time of judgment. It's not a time of condemnation. It's a time that we can come together as a family and bring our needs to the Lord, bring our celebrations to the Lord, and and seek him in all things. So uh, if you feel the need to pray today, please find one of our prayer partners and join with them. We have also been getting requests about our student minister search. And so uh, we wanted to give you guys an update on that. And for that, we have Joey Newman coming up to, to give you an update. Thank you, Travis. Okay, over the past what seems like 14 years, I don't know, it's been a couple of months, uh, <laughs> the search team has been meeting uh, and trying to find a new student discipleship minister. Uh, and over that time period, I've been up here a handful of times just to give you update and let you know where we're at. The last time I was up here, I let y'all know that we had narrowed it down to three candidates. And in that time period, we have now met uh, in person with all three. And we have interviewed, we have broken bread, uh, we've had some really good conversations, uh, we've talked to their uh, references, that's the word, we've talked to the references. Um, a lot has happened since the last time I've been up here. And where we currently are at is we have narrowed it down to one final candidate, uh, and that candidate and his wife in the next coming weeks will be making a trip here uh, and spending all weekend with us. In that time, we're going to get to know his wife. Uh, we're going to get to know him on a personal level. We're going to do some more rounds of interviews. Um, he's going to get to see what we do on Sundays here at CFCC. Uh, it's going to be a really good time. Um, I do want to reiterate that this is the final candidate. This is not 
who we are hiring. Uh, this is still a third round of an interview. This is still a let's get comfortable with this guy and his family and let's make sure he's comfortable with CFCC. Um, so we still ask for your prayers in this time. This is not a, a final, this isn't the end of the road. We're still, we're still part of the search team. Uh, and we're still looking for the correct candidate. We think we have a pretty strong candidate here and we just need to go through one last round to, to make sure of that. Um, so just keep us in your prayers. Um, keep the search team, keep the students. I think Travis gave a little update where the, the students have been doing this summer. Uh, we do have a break currently right now and our normal engage, but they are doing plenty with camps and CSM. So just keep uh, the entire student ministry in your prayers as we go through as well. And hopefully in about a month, I'll be up here introducing our new student discipleship minister to y'all. All right. So now if you will direct your attention to Shannon. Good morning. It's so good to see all your faces. You encourage me as I look out and see who has prioritized this time to set aside to worship your God. I'm Shannon, this is Corey, and we're filling in for Kevin, who will be bringing us our message. Father God, we just glorify you. We thank you so much for this opportunity to come and sing your praises. We thank you for the chance to write our hearts to center our focus and realign our priority to the most important thing, and that is lifting your name on high and thanking you for all the blessings you give us. We ask that you be with us this time, that you would just fill us up, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I'm not very transparent on stage. I have like a little fear, but I want to be honest with you this morning because um, this was a rough week for me. Sorry. What I thought was I was riding on the coattails of a miracle. I thought it was a total answer to prayer. I was afraid and he, what I thought he answered me in a really big way, in the most perfect way. He was, it was just, I was like, yes, of course you would answer in beyond my wildest dreams. And then three days into this event, it was cut short. It was totally a 180 degree turn and the bottom fell out. And in addition to that, it happened in a really humiliating and embarrassing experience for me. And I walked out of this encounter and I was just baffled. I was looking at it with eyes of spiritual questions. I was like, what just happened? What, what did this mean? And as, of course, the enemy swooped in and he started telling me the lies. Like, he's not, God's not in control. This is a circumstance like this. He wasn't over this situation. This was, um, he's just playing games with you. This is just a game. You don't know the will of God. You can't even begin to guess the will of God. You didn't pray right. You didn't have enough faith. All these thoughts came into my head because I just didn't understand how this could happen. And so it was with every fiber of my being that I had to take captive those thoughts, turn on my praise music, recall that he delights to give good gifts to his children. He delights to show himself strong on our behalf. And not every circumstance has come from his hand directly that, that are painful. And I still don't know why 
this happened. I still don't know how this is going to end. But if you're like me and you've had a week like this, I need this time. I need this time to remind my heart that he is good and he is for us. He's not playing games with us. The song that brought healing to me in that moment, it said, peace, be still, calm this soul. I need you here now. Restore my hope. I confess I'm afraid. Remind my heart, Lord, increase my faith. So I'll run into the waves as courage comes to take fear's place with perfect love, perfect love. Oh, what can take away my hallelujah? Nothing can take away my hallelujah, not darkness. The cross is made away for my hallelujah. So I just invite you to fight against the natural course of our thoughts to, to speak truth to your hearts. And this time of worship is, is, um, is so vital to me. And so I hope that it is, feeds you and restores you and gets our eyes off of the, the thing that's in front of us and onto the, our God who is bigger than all of our questions and our circumstance. And we have faith and courage to believe there's a good outcome coming. Thank you, thank you, worship team, and thank you, Shannon, for that word. Um, it's no coincidence that as I was concer- uh, thinking about the offering this morning, that I was thinking about the uh, time in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talked about the birds of the air and that how our Father meets all their needs, and they don't even sow and reap, but God still meets all their needs. And so early on in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in uh, Matthew chapters 5 and 6, Jesus teaches two or three or maybe around four lessons on giving. And in the end, he tells a story about the birds there, how they have no need and God, God takes care of them. You know, it's because they have to trust without questioning. They have to expect without expecting. All along, God is in control. So as God it helps us to mature in our stewardship. It's kind of like letting go. You know, it's, we, at some point you have to trust and expect and just learn to, to let go and let God have his way in our lives. And so I'm, also, I'm reminded again of the same story and, and you can imagine that little bird as he jumps out of the nest the first time and not sure what's gonna happen, but he has to, he has to let go. He has to spread his wings and he has to let go, right? And so we must do the same. So as we, as we pray this morning for our offering, I think just as a symbol, would you raise a hand with me like you're spreading your wing? And let's, let's ask God to bless this offering this morning. Father, thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. Thank you, Father, for taking care of us. Thank you, Father, for meeting our needs. Thank you, Father, for letting us be aware of others' needs as we give in support to help our uh, friends in Christ. And we pray, Lord, you would bless the work of, your, of, of our hands, Lord. You would bless the work as it goes toward preaching the word around the world, Father, and, and reaching souls and hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good morning. Good morning. Good to see each and every one of you here this morning at CFCC. So good to hear your voices. So good to hear the band. We're in the middle of a series right now, a sermon series called Learning from Loss. And it got me thinking this this morning, what if your entire career 
maybe even your entire life were defined by your biggest failure, your biggest mistake, your whole life defined by that one moment. Better yet, what if it were in front of thousands and thousands of people or even millions of people on television for all of the earth to see so that it was replayed over and over and over again and maybe even used as an example of exactly what not to do. What if your whole life were like that? Fortunately for most of us, our imaginations are the only places we have to ponder such a dreadful, terrible thing. Our imaginations are the only place that we, that we can even fathom that, but that's because we're not Calvin Schiraldi. Calvin Schiraldi may be a name that you don't necessarily know or, or remember, but Calvin doesn't have to imagine what it would feel like to come up short on the big stage. He knows it all too well. The 1986 Boston Red Sox were on a mission. They were on a mission to end the curse of the Bambino. You know this curse? The curse that kept them from winning for years and years. And each year they saw the New York Yankees, their arch rivals, win championship after championship after championship. And each year they failed and failed and failed. But this was their year. This was their year, 19. 86. They were on a mission to end that curse. They were up 3-2 in a best of seven series against the 1986 Mets. You may remember, if you're a Houston fan, you may remember those Mets. They met them there in game six at Shea Stadium, the Boston Red Sox and the New York Mets. They were up 5-3 to three now in the 10th inning with just one out remaining to clinch the World Series and end this curse. John McNamara, the manager of the Boston Red Sox, had chosen to send his reliever, Calvin Schiraldi, back out to the mound for an unprecedented third inning. You see, Calvin normally pitched middle relief or at the end of the games and never went beyond two innings, but because the Boston Red Sox were short-staffed, the coach sent him out for that third inning. Schiraldi, though, retired his first two batters. All right, so two outs, the Red Sox are one out away. In fact, it was so just sure in everyone's mind that the scoreboard operator mistakenly flashed on the screen, congratulations, 1986 world champions, the Boston Red Sox. And then took it down really quick when he realized what he had done. Gary Carter was the next batter up there. And Gary Carter stood in the batter's box and came through with a single. So now there's a runner on first, two outs, still one out away. Kevin Mitchell, who actually played ball with Calvin Schiraldi in the minor leagues, was now up. Now here's what's interesting. They had discussed what might happen if they ever faced each other in this moment. And Calvin Schiraldi told him that he would pitch to him a slider because he can't hit it. So Calvin Schiraldi's on the mound with Kevin Mitchell. Kevin Mitchell is expecting a slider, but Calvin Schiraldi goes, if I pitch a good slider, he's not gonna be able to hit it, except for one thing, he threw a terrible slider. Kevin Mitchell hits a single. Runners at first and second, two outs, still one out away. 
Ray Knight walks up. Ray Knight walks up. Calvin has him on an 0-2 count. He had never lost an 0-2 count all season long. That's zero balls, two strikes. Literally one strike away now from clinching the World Series. But it's what he does there is he pitches as hard as he can right down the middle, hoping he can blow by him with a fastball. And Knight hit it hard to center to drive in Carter and advance Mitchell to third. So now there are runners on first and third, two outs. Sox still lead five to four. You tracking with me? I mean, Boston is just, you know this as a Houston fan, what this feels like, right? At this point, John McNamara, the manager, had had enough, and he pulled Calvin Schiraldi out of the game for Bob Steamer Stanley. Stanley goes to the mound, throws a wild pitch to Mookie Wilson, uh, scoring a run and advancing the winning run to second base. Now with the count at 2-2, one strike away, Stanley Steamer pitches to Wilson, and this happened. 5-5 in a delirious 10th inning. Can you believe this ballgame at Shea? Oh, brother. Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. Mm. The veteran Bill Buckner, who's playing on two bad ankles, normally was pulled out of the game for a better defensive player, but for whatever reason, John McNamara kept him in at first base and he side gallops toward the foul line to get this ball and just misses it by inches. Calvin Schiraldi, the pitcher who led all those runs in and led to that moment, a lot of people blame Bill Buckner for that moment and ostracized him from Boston. A lot of people blame him for that moment, but he wouldn't have been in that position if Calvin Schiraldi had just pitched that one strike. Calvin Schiraldi would again pitch in game seven of the World Series, but this time he would give up three runs on three hits and a wild pitch. The Boston Red Sox would lose their chance. New York would win eight to five. Calvin lost again. Mets world champions. Boston cursed again. Nobody, nobody likes to fail. Does anybody in here like to fail? Does anybody enjoy failing in here? No one likes to lose. This has got to be the reason why when you walk in a bookstore, there's so many books on how to succeed (laughs) because nobody wants to lose. But if you've lived at all in your life, you've lost at something. You have failed at something. There are people in this room who have lost, who've lost jobs, they've lost careers, they've They've lost loved ones. They've lost, lost their homes. They've, they've lost possessions. They've lost their marriages. But for some, the loss of a dream can be just as much as a crushing defeat as any of those other things. And it may just be baseball. It might just be a game, but Calvin Schiraldi undoubtedly lost a dream that night, don't you think? He definitely lost a dream. And after the game, Shiraldi went back to his hotel 
and to try and kind of put things behind him and, and refocus. And he sat down in the hotel room and he picked up his favorite book, the Bible, which he read every night before he would go to bed one chapter at a time. And on this particular night, he picked up where he left off, which is in Romans chapter five, verse three. And it says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 3, 5, 3 through 5. And this passage put everything into perspective for Calvin. Finally, again, it seemed like it was just a game. He realized that there was more to life than just baseball. There's some bigger story happening. There's something bigger at stake than just this game. There's something bigger than a dream. And so today we're going to look at another person in this sermon series on learning from loss, another person that experienced great loss. We looked at, the first person we looked at was Job. The second person we looked at was Joseph. And today we're going to look at the story of Naomi in the book of Ruth and find out how she responded to loss. And so if you want to, you can turn there to the book of Ruth. Um, It's right after the book of Judges and uh, right before 1 Samuel. So if you go to 1 Samuel, you've gone too far, just back up just a little bit. The story of Ruth, while you're turning there, is a, it's a good story. Um, It's a strange story, but it's a, if anything else, a really sad story. And so I want to read to you just the beginning here in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, sets the the scene for what we're going to be dealing with. And the rest of the story it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn to travel as a, as a migrant in the country of Moab and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, we'll call him Eli. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were... Uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, Eli, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and then tragedy strikes again. Both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I can't imagine the devastation of that much loss. It's, it's terrible enough to, to consider to contemplate losing one child but two children and your husband. I mean, there had to have been a deep, deep emotional loss that overtook her, but there was a practical loss to this as well. See, at that time, there was no social security system. There was no retirement. There was no life insurance. There was really nothing for Naomi to hang on to for her to be taken care of. She had nothing to fall back on. And so her daughters-in-law stay by her side. Ruth and Orpah, who interestingly enough, Oprah is named after, but they apparently that's on her birth certificate, but uh, folks didn't really like the way it sounded, so they changed it to Oprah. Just a little fact for you there. Ruth and and Orpah say, no, we're going to stay with you. We're going to stay with you. And Naomi says in verse 11, she says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go on with me? Have I yet sons in my womb 
that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have a hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi is, is blaming this on the Lord. This situation that she's facing right now has caused her to turn bitter. She's overwhelmed with grief. Again, you can, you can understand this, I think. She's overwhelmed with grief, with loneliness, with fear, and an utter sense, I believe, of hopelessness, completely hopeless, in despair. What was there to live for? She must have thought, it's just time to cash it in. There's nothing worth living for. And so maybe you can relate. I mean, again, every person in this room has, has lost something. Every person in this room has experienced loss or failure. When our spouse or someone we care about is lying in a hospital bed, when our loved ones are, are dying, when our ministry is up or down, when we're depressed or we're emotionally unstable, when our finances are a wreck, when we feel all alone at school and we don't feel like we have any friends around us, when we feel like an outcast, that's when these questions come flooding in. Why do I hurt so much, God? Why am I in so much pain? Why have you chosen me to deal with this? Why did I have to have an alcoholic father? Why did I have to be born into a family where I would be abused? And when we're living in the midst of those shattered dreams of what we expected life to be, the question, is God really at work right now? Is he really at work right now? Because it doesn't feel like it. Is God really a good father? It's easy to find yourself in the same place that Naomi was here. And you can hear this kind of doubt in Naomi's voice when she returns home to Bethlehem. They hear that the famine has, has ended and Ruth has decided to go with her. Orpah has decided to go her own way, but, but Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Your God is my God. And they go home to Bethlehem and people are looking at their old friend, Naomi, who's come back to town and they say, is that Naomi? And she says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It means bitterness. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You hear the doubt in her voice, you hear the bitterness, you hear the anger. But the Apostle Paul says in that passage we just read out of Romans that was in Calvin Schiraldi's hotel room, Paul says, take heart. This loss, this suffering that you're experiencing, this difficulty that you're facing right now is producing something in you, unbeknownst to you. It is producing something in you. God is up to something good. God is up to something good, even when it doesn't look like it, even when I don't feel like it is. I believe it in faith that God is up to something good. I gotta be honest with you, I'm not always feeling it. 
I don't feel it all the time when we wake up and come to church and we sing these songs or we read the scripture, but you know why I do it? Because I believe it in faith. I do it because I need to be preached to. I need to remind myself with these words over and over again of God's goodness, just like Shannon was saying earlier. I can't, I can't base my life on my feelings. My feelings are misleading often. God gave us emotions and he gave us passion and all those things are good, but if I rely simply on my feelings, they're gonna be completely unreliable. I need something more concrete, more sturdy, more stable, and that's God's word. And so when we come together as the body of Christ, we gather around God's word to be reminded of the truth, not just our feelings. We come to be reminded of the truth. We need to be anchored in something more than our emotions. And if we read closely, we see in Naomi's story here in this book that God is up to something good. So Naomi and Ruth decide to go back home to Bethlehem where it sounds like this famine is over. And God has made provisions by way of the law for them. That if you're a migrant, now remember Naomi This is her home, this is Bethlehem, so she's not a migrant, but her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is a migrant, and God had made provisions for migrant workers, for sojourners, for travelers, for foreigners, for aliens, whatever you wanna call them, to be able to glean from a person's field, to, to be able to glean grain, to take grain from the borders, from the edges of these fields. And so Ruth says, I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna glean some food for us because we don't have any. And, and Naomi sends her on her way. Does it basically just doesn't say anything, just says go. And so Ruth goes. What they didn't realize was the field that Ruth chose out of all of the fields that she could have chosen was the field of a family relative. His name was Boaz. And unlike many men described in the Bible that we read about, It says that Boaz was a worthy man. He was a man of character. And even more than that, he was a man of influence. He was a man of of great wealth as well. And he notices Ruth in, in his field gleaning on the edges of the field. And he asks one of his workers, who who is this woman? And he tells her, gives he tells Boaz, gives him the story about how she traveled here with. Her mother-in-law has, she's chosen to stay with her and Boaz is moved and goes to Ruth and not only gives her permission to, to glean from the field, but actually goes above and over what the law actually requires of him. He gives her favor, he gives her water to drink, he sends her home with tons of grain, like enough grain to last them for two weeks, she and her mother-in-law. When she left that morning, Ruth was looking for someone who would show her grace. And Boaz was the channel of that grace. Grace is favor bestowed on us. Even when we don't deserve it, even when we don't earn it. We sing that song on Sundays here. Grace is something that we don't deserve, it's something that we don't earn. And Boaz was the channel of that grace. God, in the story here, is up to something good. But how would Naomi respond when Ruth 
came home with all of this grain. Remember the last time that we heard from Naomi, she was, she was incredibly bitter. She was incredibly angry. And she was blaming God for her sorrow. But this time when Ruth returns home, it says in Ruth chapter two, verse 20, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord. Speaking of Boaz, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Not only does Naomi bless Boaz, but she blesses the Lord as well. It's not clear who she's saying, uh, who, who she's directing this kindness has not forsaken us. And she, we're not clear if she's focusing that on Boaz or the Lord. She's, she's really sort of blessing both of them. And she says, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so something is growing in the heart of Naomi. There's a change in her. Something is being produced in the midst of this struggle. God is up to something good. And so who's this redeemer that she's speaking of? This, this kinman, this relative of ours is one of our redeemers. What does that mean? Naomi is referring to something called the law of a kinsman redeemer. The law of a kinsman redeemer is given in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 through 34. And the purpose of this law was to preserve the name and protect the property of families in Israel so that if a, a man who died, a man dies and, and passes away that the, and, and no one has the ability to to purchase the land and keep the land, that it can't just be taken from them. The law of the kinsman redeemer allows someone to purchase it for them so that they can keep it in the family. And as a near relative, Boaz could redeem the family property that Eli had mortgaged during the famine. And although Naomi wasn't wealthy enough to purchase it, Boaz could buy it back and keep it in the family. Not only that, Boaz would have to marry Ruth and any children that they had, remember she doesn't have any children, any children that they have, even though he is a kinsman redeemer, they would bear the name of their deceased father. And those children would inherit, inherit the property, the family name, and any family possessions. This is a complete reversal of fortune here for this family. God is up to something good. Because this is exactly what Boaz does. Boaz purchases Naomi's land back. He pays off the family's debt. And at the closing of the sale, if you read it in chapter three, they do some kind of weird sandal exchange. I'm not real sure what that's all about. In front of a group of witnesses, testifies to this is what I'm doing so everyone can see. I'm gonna purchase this land back so that all of you remember. And it's done, redeemed, purchased, saved, bought. Just in chapter four, those words occur 15 times in, in just that chapter. A kinsman redeemer is, and the idea of a redeemer is, is repeated all throughout Ruth, but just in chapter four of Ruth, that idea of this person redeeming them and purchasing them and paying off their debt is mentioned 15 times. 
In the story of Ruth, we find a woman whose dream has been absolutely shattered, but by the end of the story, in just four chapters, she's in a different place. In chapter four, it ends, I'll just read it here. I don't even know if the words are on the screen. But in chapter four, it ends like this. The women said to Naomi now, this is, Ruth has married Boaz, and they've had children, and the women around town are looking at Naomi, and they're seeing just how blessed she is, and they say, then, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than the seven sons, has given birth to this little child, this little boy. And then Naomi, I love this, took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Remember the song? Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know is king. Remember that song? This is, this, this is, the, great, this is the great grandfather of King David. This little child that she's bouncing on her knee. She had nothing, shattered dreams. And here she sits bouncing the great grandfather of David who would go on to be the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Here she is bouncing on her knee the tangible evidence of hope in her life. Her dreams have been restored. God is up to something good. Remember Calvin Schiraldi? There's Calvin. Texas guy, by the way, went to UT. Played with Roger Clemens. He was actually on that team with Roger. He credits the devastating loss of the 1986 World Series to finding his true calling, if you can imagine that. Five years after he threw his last pitch in the majors, Calvin went back to UT and he earned his teaching degree. And Shiraldi then became the baseball coach for St. Michael's Catholic Academy. And when he started, this is crazy, when he started, there weren't even enough players on the team to have a full practice. Six years later, they won their first of two consecutive state championships in baseball. And as successful as he has been in baseball and as fulfilled as his, his life is, one can't wonder what it would have been like if he'd have gotten that last strike. If he'd have won the World Series, he'd be looked at as a hero. He'd be, there'd be statues of this guy, the person who ended the curse of the Bambino. Calvin doesn't really see it that way. He says, of course, he wouldn't have wished for his, anybody to lose like that and for the Boston Red Sox to lose, especially in that fashion, but he came to appreciate how that loss shaped him, how it made him who he was. Lose a, a loved one, 
a job, lose anything of value. And as awful as it might feel at the time, you can't imagine you, you can't imagine the person you'd be today if you hadn't gone through that struggle and that experience. And in Calvin's case, again, I know it's just baseball, but he wouldn't have changed a thing about game six of the World Series. He said, that's what made me who I am. Think about it. If I'd have gotten any of those hitters out, I'd probably not have spent the past 20 years at St. Michael's. He says, I think I've affected a lot more people this way than if I had won the World Series. The point is this, God can use it all. God uses it all, even our failures, our losses for his glory and for his good, but also for our good. The picture of Boaz here that I want to kind of close with here this morning is an Old Testament picture of Jesus. The character of Boaz should sort of remind us of Jesus the Christ. Like Boaz, Jesus wasn't concerned with jeopardizing his own inheritance. That's exactly what he did when he, when he married Ruth and had children with her that would take this inheritance. But Boaz wasn't concerned with that. Neither was Jesus. Instead, he made us part of his inheritance. Like Boaz, Jesus paid the price publicly in front of witnesses, in front of people who would see. And like Boaz, Jesus did what he did because he loved his bride. He fell in love with Ruth. But there are also some differences between Boaz and Jesus. Boaz purchased Ruth by giving out his wealth, but Jesus purchased us by giving up his life. Boaz took Ruth that he would raise up the name of her deceased husband, but Christians glorify the name of the living Christ. Witnesses on earth testify that Ruth belonged to Boaz there when he paid for that property and paid off the debt. But we have witnesses in heaven, in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when you consider who Jesus is and what he has done for us, there's no reason that we should feel hopeless. That's not saying that it's wrong or that you can't be feeling what you're, you're feeling right now or, or that you're less of a person. I just wanna direct you to your hope today. I wanna remind you of your hope that even in the midst of your struggle, we may not see it in our lifetime, but God is up to something good. He uses it all. God is up to something good. You can rejoice in hope if you focus your faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this day. And uh, we give you praise and glory and honor that you don't define us by our losses, by our failures. When you look at us, you see the victory of Jesus Christ. You see righteousness. And so God, we we thank you for being gracious to us. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. 
Help us, Lord, give us the faith to believe that you're up to something good. Like the man said in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, give us, give us the faith to believe you're up to something good and to not lose hope, but to trust in you. Father, we thank you for these things and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna ask our communion servers to come up to the front to make their way. And as they do, I wanna remind you that we take communion at Cypher Christian Church every single Sunday because it's central to who we are. The grace and forgiveness we find in Christ's death and the hope that we find in his resurrection is central to who we are as believers. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single week and we're gonna celebrate it now. We take communion by dipping the bread and so the servers are gonna come up here and they're gonna have the bread and the cup. One of them's gonna break off a piece of bread and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And the other person is gonna have the cup that represents his blood and they're gonna say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And I hope that this moment today, it really and truly is a celebration that maybe, maybe for you today, you move from despair to hope. But if not, I pray that you're encouraged to. Let's celebrate what the Lord has done in Jesus as we take of communion here today. Would you please join us in focusing on the baptism as we celebrate? Come on out, Becton. Today, you guys get to join me in celebrating the baptism of Becton Watson. Uh, I met Becton when he was in second grade, and uh, one of the defining things about Becton that I think about when I think about him is questions. He has asked me more questions over that time than any other single person, and I live with three children. <laughs> Becton has a hunger for knowledge and truth. And that hunger for knowledge and truth has led him to Christ. And uh, he is at a point where he would like to publicly profess his faith. So, Becton, are you ready for this? Yeah. All right. Right over here. We're going to switch sides. Repeat after me, sir. I believe. I believe. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. And my personal Lord and Savior. And my personal Lord and Savior. Becton. Based on this profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Good job, buddy. Give me a hug. I don't need, I don't need the rules. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> How cool is that? Such a good way to end the service. Yeah. Why don't you guys stand with me here? Just one other closing thought. When a kinsman redeemer bought the land, it was custom to record the transaction of the purchase on a scroll, on a piece of parchment. And that scroll would be rolled up and sealed. And this purchase deed was given to someone else reliable, someone else worthy enough. So that when the kinsman redeemer wanted 
to reclaim the land, the redeemer was allowed to go to the person who held the scroll, break the seal, prove his ownership, and restore the land to that individual. Reminds me of something. In Revelation chapter five, John says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is the only one worthy enough to redeem us, to save us from our sin, to give us salvation, to secure our eternal hope in heaven. And so this morning, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, I wanna encourage you to do so. He's the only one worthy. He's the only one capable of saving us from our sins. And he is good. God is up to something good in your life, no matter the circumstance, no matter how hard it seems to be. God is up to something good this morning. And so if you're not quite there, maybe as you sing these words, begin to preach to your heart the truth that our Heavenly Father is good and he loves us. Amen. week as we remember these promises, as we look with hope how you're changing our situation. You show yourself strong in these situations in any tough time, any disappointment. Lord, we look to you to keep our eyes on you and we know that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.